Welcome, my friends, to another edition of the Inside BS Show. Today we are talking about, well, we're talking about nutrition, we're talking about stress, and we're talking about improving your mental acuity based upon what you put in your mouth. We're talking about how you can optimize your performance as a human being through nutrition. And I have a very special guest today. My guest today is Dr. Delia McCabe. She's a PhD and she shifted her research focus from clinical psychology to nutritional neuroscience upon discovering nutrition's critical role in mental well-being and she did this while she was completing her master's in psychology she discovered it while she was completing her master's in psychology her research into female stress has been published in a number of peer-reviewed journals she's a regular featured expert in the media and her two books are available in four languages Delia uses her background in psychology combined with evidence-based nutritional neuroscience and neurological strategies to support her behavior, to support behavior change and stress resiliency within corporations and for individuals who want to optimize their brain health. Let's face it, who doesn't want to optimize their brain health? I know I do. Now, Delia does this via online courses, via workshops, and through tailored events, and she does it all over the world. Having had a stressed female brain herself, she now speaks to cultivating calm and enjoying chocolate and yoga to maintain it. I like the sound of that. All right, please (laughs) join me in welcoming Dr. Delia McCabe to the Inside BS Show. All right, so you can see why I need some help with my mental acuity. (laughs) Listen, it is a pleasure, uh, Delia, to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Dave, the pleasure's all mine. I love chatting about this, and it's a delight to be here. Thank you. All right. So let's talk first and foremost about, let's, let's start with stress, right? Stress comes from all different places, and we can be stressed out for all different reasons. How, what role does nutrition play in the, the, the stress that we feel, and what toll does that take on our bodies? Okay, let's just step back a moment. Just imagine we're walking through this forest. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. It's a a glorious moment. We're just enjoying the environment. And suddenly we hear a rustle in the bushes. And we say to ourselves, we actually don't say anything. Immediately our brain registers it could be a danger. And so we start moving very quickly before we can even think about it. Our survival instinct is genetically programmed into us to get away from danger and in the process of getting away from danger we have to get blood glucose into our muscles to either fight the danger or flee the danger so we start moving we run away from that tiger and then it turns out that it was only a rustle it wasn't a real tiger so immediately we calm down and we carry on our good walk in the forest the problem today is that the brain evolved to only experience stress for between 30 and 60 seconds because look the tiger either caught us in that time or otherwise we escaped and we could calm down. So 30 to 60 seconds is the max. Today the tiger's chasing most of us 24-7. That's the feeling that most people have. So continuously the body's pumping out adrenaline, it's sending glucose to the muscles to run away from this tiger, and we're never escaping it. So this ongoing adrenaline and later cortisol production exhausts the body firstly, 
because the body wasn't designed to do that. Second thing it does, it ages us really quickly. And the third thing it does, it allows us to pack on weight, specifically mm. in our gut region, because we've got four times more cortisol receptors in our gut region. So the stress we're experiencing today is a very different stress to what we were designed to experience. Adding insult to injury, which a lot of people don't realize, is that this kind of stress is continuously referring to the prefrontal cortex. This is the the, the most recent development of the brain. And so it's continuously referring to that and saying, hey, have you seen this before? You know, is there some kind of a framework for this? When, when last did we experience this before? And then the prefrontal cortex chats to the hippocampus and the hippocampus says, look, we've never experienced this before. You know, it, specifically in relation to the pandemic, we've never had a pandemic before. How, what reference do we have? So there's this constant backwards and forwards in the brain. So basically our brain is just primed all the time at the moment to be stressed, to be vigilant, to look for a solution, to look for an outcome, to look for some kind of plan that we can implement. And it's all exhausting because everything is happening within this very sophisticated brain across which compounds, chemicals, membranes, molecules all operate according to the nutrients that we feed them. So with this constant onslaught of fear and overwhelm and stress, these nutrients become depleted because you know, we, weren't, we didn't evolve to experience this kind of ongoing stress. So what happens is that we end up only having enough nutrients to, sub, to supply adrenaline and cortisol production because these, these compounds require nutrients to be synthesized. So then when you lie down and, and you're trying to go to sleep, you're exhausted, but you're wired because your brain is saying, hey, you know, there could still be a tiger in the bushes. So you're not able to then produce serotonin. So it's kind of like a very negative domino effect that just continues down the path because we're not coming to the end of the stressful experience. Yeah, I, you know, you've, that, that is a great explanation. And the way it manifested itself in my personal life, I'm share, I'll share this with the folks who are listening, the folks who are watching. So March 13th, we, we realized that the pandemic was going to be a big deal right uh here in the states that was when we started our two weeks to to stop the spread right and we've been stopping the spread for two weeks ever since <laughs> so um you know i immediately called all my clients and i heard in my clients voices uh fear i heard you know panic i heard concern for their businesses as much as for their own personal safety and Add to that, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, I have kids and we all were and there's there's older people in my family. My parents are in their 80s. I didn't realize the toll that that was taking on my body until months later. So now fast forward to November and uh, in, in October, I applied for a clinical trial for one of the vaccine candidates. And I filled out all the paperwork and then they called me and did an interview with me and they said, do you have any pre-existing conditions? And I said, no, I don't have any pre-existing conditions. So they said, great. I went through the interview. They said, we think you're a perfect candidate. Come in and we'll do a physical. And if you pass the physical, we'll give you the shot right there. You got a 50-50 chance of getting the vaccine candidate or placebo. So I said, terrific. This is, this is on a Wednesday. That Friday, I go to the research center. I live in Miami, University of Miami Medical Center. I go to the research center. And very nice people. They do a full physical. Uh, they they uh, take blood. And then they go to take my blood pressure. Historically, I have always had low blood pressure. 
like you know lit literally like uh uh you know 102 over 70 or sometimes you know in the uh in the you know 105 over the mid 60s low blood pressure my and my doctors remarked about how how low my blood pressure was and how that was terrific and everything so they take my blood pressure here in november for this for this uh vaccine study and the woman's like, I think we're gonna have to change the category that you're in because you've got you've got hypertension. I'm like, well, what do you mean I got hypertension? I have I have low blood pressure. I don't have high blood pressure. She's like, no, look, and it and my blood pressure was ridiculous. It was like 160 over 100 and uh, over uh, uh, like 135 or 140. And then they waited like 15 minutes and they took it again. It was like 158 over like 135. And uh, and I said, I don't know. I don't know where this is coming from. I had ne I've never had this issue before. I've, in fact, I had, you know, maybe I put on a little bit of weight during the pandemic, maybe about 15 pounds, not like 35 pounds. Um, so they said, well, you know, you can, you know, if we can get it below, if we can get it down to like 132, you can still participate in the in the study. Um, but we're going to have to change the category that you're in. You're going to have to be in a comorbidity category. So now I'm going home and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, <laughs> this is really bad. <laughs> well, so I get the I get the shot in on November 13th uh, after Christmas in January. I'm going to go for my annual physical and I tell my doctor the whole story. And my doctor says, listen, do yourself a favor. Let's give you let's get an antibody test. I know you're not supposed to as part of the study, but if you have antibodies, it'll put your brain at ease. So we get the antibody test. I go for my physical and he uh, they give me the I got the results of the blood work the week before I have antibodies. So I got the vaccine. Do you know they take my blood pressure at the doctors? My blood pressure again was was low. It was normal. It was the stress of the pandemic that had shot the, my blood pressure through the roof. So imagine all of that time from May all the way through to, you know, to the following to January to just, you know, we're recording this at the end of February to just like a month ago that, you know, all that time, what that was doing to my body, to the, you know, cord you talk about cortisol production. So in January, I immediately, you know, got back into physical activity. I, uh, I've, I've since lost the 15 pounds that I gained. My blood pressure is back to where it was, low, nice, low blood pressure. But we don't, re my point of that whole story, which is probably too long, we don't realize, we don't realize the effect that these these external stressors are having on us. So if you're having a rough time at work or you're feeling financial pressure or you've got relationship problems and it's going on for a long period of time, you need some positive self-care to reduce the amount of stress you're you're experiencing. Um, it just was like that is a, an extreme example, but it's I'm a regular guy and it's if it's happening to me, it could be happening to everybody. I really am so pleased you shared that story because it highlights a very, very important fact. We're very good at pushing things under the carpet, you know. You know the story about the frog. You put him in cold water and you slowly boil the water. He'll boil himself alive without realizing what's happening. And this is what's happened to a lot of people. They keep on thinking it's coming to an end. And, you know, the human brain hates uncertainty. That's a big, big 
no-no. So what a lot of us have been telling ourselves, it's coming, you know, the end, it's coming, it's coming. And so we've been pushing ourselves and saying, we'll ignore those niggly irritation, irritations that we feel physiologically. We'll just wait until it's over. So your story is a very, very good example of exactly what can happen to a person when they just ignore the fact that this is an ongoing stress. And it's why I speak about stress resiliency, because, you know, stress management is really an old-fashioned word. We now know we live in a world that's never going to change. We're never going to go back to pre-COVID. The world looks different. And so trying to manage stress is like trying to placate something that can't be placated. We need to actually step up and become much more stress resilient. And, you know, we know a lot more now about the human body and the human brain to be able to facilitate that. So your story illustrates that people should not ignore the fact that we've all been under stress. I think part of the problem, Dave, is that I think when people admit that they're feeling stressed, when they admit that they're feeling overwhelmed or anxious or even a bit depressed, because society has stigmatized mental ill health for such a long time, people think it's a weakness mm. that, that they feel these emotions. And it's important for me to say right now that any brain, any brain, you can be the most robust person. You could have withstood an enormous amount of stress and pressure in your life. But any person that has a brain has the potential for that brain to become anxious and depressed simply because at the cellular level, changes occur in the structure of the brain with chronic stress. You know, you can't talk that away. It is actually what happens at the cellular level. So I think everybody should just realize that they need to take very, very good care of the body and the brain because all of these things are happening under the surface as what happened with you. And just taking that on board and saying everybody is vulnerable. Nobody's standing above the spray. Yeah. You know, so a couple of things that, that I did immediately after coming back from that first appointment where my, when my blood pressure was so high, I had learned years ago uh, because of because of all the travel I did and and everything, I learned to meditate, and meditation was very helpful for me when I was on the road. Well, because I've been home now for a year, I kind of had fallen off my meditation routine. I meditate in the morning, meditate in the afternoon, so I went back to meditation, and then I immediately uh, made modifications to my diet with the salt, and I increased the amount of potassium I was taking in to you know to make sure that I was doing. I I, I learned to eat more of a heart healthy diet. And then I find out that my stress was what was causing the blood pressure. And I was like, oh, man, all these months I've been eating this food. I could have gone and you know, had a pizza. <laughs> but I mean, that. so the, the, the dietary changes have stuck with me. And, um, you know, we've made, you know, here in our house, we've made some other changes. So I do want to talk uh, more about stress. But before we before we get off the subject of of the pandemic, talk to me a little bit about the immune system, and talk a little bit about because we I, we we've been there's been like a running kind of discussion that I've been having with friends of mine who are uh, medical professionals and people who do what you do who are nutritionists. It, talk about the role of vitamin D and zinc and the immune system. And if you're low in vitamin D, how, especially during the pandemic, it's really important to, to make sure you're getting the right amount of vitamin D. This is a good question. Um, I think something that really got me really irritable when, when the pandemic started, I kept on seeing these articles about boost your immune system and these 
you know, immune-boosting herbs and so on. And I think it's a bit of a challenge to try and get an immune system that's been ignored for decades to suddenly step up and become robust. Right. So that's the thing I think people need to understand. We need it's, The immune system is a system, and it operates according to all the same principles that the rest of the body operates according to. And there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that vitamin D is extremely important for our immune system, but also for brain function mm. and, and to modulate mood. And vitamin D is actually a hormone. Right. It's not actually a vitamin. So when we discovered that, we realized, wow, it's got a whole lot of very important roles to play in the body. So that's the one thing. Zinc as well has got over 300 different enzyme reactions that zinc is involved in, and many of them are also neurological in, in base. So that's very important as well. And then vitamin C, extremely important for the immune system. As a species, we used to be able to develop or actually synthesize our own vitamin D, I mean vitamin C, and we lost that capacity. So our vitamin C needs to be kept at a really high dose um, with, from the food that we eat. But overall, our diet needs to be nutrient-dense for immune function mm. because there are so many different layers in our immune system. I and mean, if we just take our gut, for example, our gut, which is our enteric nervous system, is a primary, primary area for our immune system to function optimally from. And if we are, our gut is ignored and we're eating foods without the right kinds of fiber and so on and so forth, that the bacteria that help our immune system to function optimally from within our gut are compromised. So that's something that people need to focus on. And then the other thing is movement. One of the things that makes our immune system function well is our lymph system. And our lymph is found, you know, within lots of different parts of our body. But when we move, one of the reasons I love yoga is because yoga makes you move in a way that gets your lymph st stimulated mm. just naturally. So that movement is something that's really important. So when you see people being stressed and depressed and maybe even anxious, they don't move a lot. And that immediately depletes their, their immune functionality, just the lack of movement, never mind the mental, mental um, you know, the framework. So the immune system isn't a switch. And I think people need to understand that. To build up our, in, our immune system takes time and effort. You can't just do it overnight. And whatever you do for your immune system, you're doing for the rest of your body and your gut and your brain. So it's this beautiful domino effect that just carries on giving. Yeah. Um, so what are the, what are the best foods like vi vitamin D? If you're, if you're low, you got to talk to your doctor because you're probably going to need some yeah. supplementation. I was in the, in the teens in terms of vitamin D measurement and he, and the doctor put me on, uh, 50,000 I use for an eight week protocol yeah. to get it back up. And now I take 5,000 every day just to make sure we maintain, um, but what foods can we get zinc from? Where, where, so if we want to incorporate foods into our diet to, to help boost our zinc and, you know, vitamin C, everybody kind of, any, everybody kind of knows, but where can we get zinc? Zinc, one of the richest sources of zinc is actually oysters, ah. which is why oysters get the, yeah. But the problem is our, our oceans are not really very clean anymore. So getting zinc from oysters may not be, and not be the ideal solution. Zinc with we a touch of mercury. From, yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with a touch of mercury and some PCBs as well. So that's a bit of a challenge. Um, I think um, pepita seeds, pumpkin seeds, um, have a lot of zinc in them. And then, of course, we also get zinc from, from flesh, animal flesh, like lamb and beef and so on. So, so those are some of the areas. I do suggest, though, that people get blood work done yeah. because when we're really low in, in nutrients, when we're deficient, you know, it's like trying to hit a moving target. It's really difficult to try a bit of this and try a bit of that. Um, part of my research pointed out that just stress management dietary supplements will reach over $16 billion by, by 2025. 
that's an annual spend. It's really, really scary. And a lot of that um, has no evidence to support it. So first have bloods done, look at bloods, and then assess. And I always suggest that people take a dietary supplement in a powder form. Oh, first interesting. Choice, powder. Interesting. So powder yes. because of absorption? Because of absorption, yes. Because every time that there is something separating you from the nutrient, it's harder for it to break down. Mm. I take a, a zinc supplement and it's got a veggie cap because I haven't found the perfect powder yet. So I use a veggie cap. I don't like tablets because the tablets have to be created to make sure that the machines don't get clogged up mm. when the tablet is actually being manufactured. And they use a particular kind of fat in that tablet manufacture. So I prefer to avoid those kind of tablets. So powder first, veggie cap second. But obviously food first. And in my book, I've got a lot of lists of all the different kinds of nutrients and, and where they're found. But mostly we get a lot of our nutrients from a nutrient-dense and varied diet. Mm. So when people stick to the same kind of diet, same thing all the time, and they don't change in the seasons, they're not actually getting all the nutrients they need. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind. And that also keeps our blood glucose stable, which keeps our mood stable, which also reduces cravings because... When our blood glucose isn't stable, we reach for that coffee, we reach for that chocolate bar just to get a, give us that energy hit again. And then, of course, that downward cycle continues. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about C now, vitamin C. Uh, everybody knows uh, the fruits where, where you can get vitamin C. Um, we, uh, living in Florida, we, we have, we have, you know, citrus, citrusy fruits are, are plentiful, but we also, in our house, we also supplement. Now here's the thing. And I, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I get to ask you this question. So ascorbic acid, it can be a little, little difficult on the tummy. Some people, uh, some people don't react well to the acid. So Ascorbyl palmitate is, is the fat soluble vitamin C. What is, so is that... It, can you take that the same way that you take the water-soluble ascorbic acid, or do you have to be more careful with that because it's fat-soluble? Should you even be supplementing with that? Look, I'm not, I'm not keen on anything that's got a fat added to it because fat is a really very complex nutritional discussion, and we can touch on that in a little while. I prefer to take a vitamin C that's got bioflavonoids with it, mm -hmm. and I actually make my own mixture. I, I take three different kinds of vitamin C, mix them together in a bowl, and then bottle them for myself. And so I do definitely use plain ascorbic acid, but then I mix it with a supplement that's got um, bioflavonoids and a little bit of um, an orange flavor to it, a natural orange flavor. And then the third one is a completely natural vitamin C that's got acerola cherries in it. Um, acai cherries in it just ground up so that you're getting the actual fiber and the nutrients many of which we don't understand how they work mm. with vitamin c so it's actually a powder the other thing to keep in mind dave which is important is that the body can only really absorb 500 milligrams of vitamin c in one go right. so at taking more of that on you just you know you're making expensive urine yeah. so i actually use vitamin C twice a day. I supplement with that and I have that in some water. I mix it up and I have that, you know, separately. And also have a lot of vitamin C rich food like capsicums and kiwi fruit are also very, very rich in that as well as the citrus fruits. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, now let's talk about the, the proper diet for people who are in high stress professions. Okay. Let's say you're an attorney or you're a mom, right? High stress mom is a high stress profession. Um, you're an air traffic controller, you're a pilot. What is the, do we, do people in high stress, who are in high stress situations, 
frequently throughout the course of their day, do they need a different type of diet? Should they be focused on different types of foods or is it just important that their diet is well balanced? This is a good question and it's a, it's a complex one to answer. Let's just go back to the brain again. You know, it's only 2% body weight. It is the most energy intensive organ that we own. We've got 160,000 kilometers of blood vessels in the brain. It's a vast quantity. Um, the, the brain uses upwards of 25% of the carbohydrates we consume as energy. But the part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is the most sophisticated part of the brain, uses 20% of that 25%, which is why people end up suffering from decision fatigue. Mm. So if you're in a job where you have to make a lot of decisions, like an air traffic controller, for example, they have to focus very clearly. I'll give you an example. I did a radio interview once, and I got to the studio, and the guy was sitting behind these three screens, the guy that was in charge of everything, these three screens. And I watched him because I, I watch humans. You know, being a neuroscientist, I'm very curious about how we operate. And I watched him, and he was watching social media in relation to the last broadcast they'd just done. He was looking at the next one, which I was part of, and then he was doing something else on the other screen. And I said to him, your attention is now between those three screens. And he said, yes. And I said, how long is your working day? And he said, I cannot work past six hours. He said, after six hours, my brain stops. And then I understood exactly that was in action. He couldn't make any more decisions after that period of time because his prefrontal cortex could no longer hold on to all of those things at the same time. So if a person is in a position where they have to be innovative, they have to be creative, they have to be thinking outside the box, they need to understand that their prefrontal cortex will only operate optimally for the first part of the day. Mm. No making big decisions late in the day. No making destiny decisions when you're exhausted. Capitalize on the beginning of the day when your brain is fresh. That's the first point. And know that that's the most energy-demanding part of the brain. Second thing, keep blood glucose stable. Now, this is important for everybody, right. no matter what career you're in. Because if your blood glucose is stable, your brain is getting a consistent supply of energy. What happens if you don't have that consistent supply of energy is that you have an energy up and an energy dip. And then what happens is that you also have adrenaline spiking when you have that energy dip. So what happens is that you then are needing an energy lift. And most people, as I said earlier, reach for a coffee or a chocolate. So that's the challenge. The challenge is the minute your blood glucose dips, you reach for something that gives you that energy lift, that Cuban coffee or that chocolate. The problem with us at the moment is, though, is that stress is also driving blood glucose dips and lows. And we've learned, interestingly, because we species, a species that learns really quickly, is that a lot of these um, energy-producing foods, these highly processed foods, also give us a hit of dopamine, which is a pleasure hit, sure. and also release opioids in the bloodstream. Now, a lot of people aren't aware of that, that highly refined carbs release opioids. No, I didn't, I didn't know that. So the same opioids that, that people are you yeah. know, going on the street to buy are released in our... Is it a lot of opioids or a little bit of opioids? No, it's just enough. And we call them exogenous opioids. And that's exogenous because we make them ourselves. Oh, wow. So we get this little dip in this hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access 
heightened state. And so we know that if we eat that packet of crisps, the HPA just goes down and we feel a little bit calm. And so we've learned over time that these kinds of foods give us a little bit of a calm feeling. And so we do that over and over again when we're in a stressed state. When we're just exhausted and our brains aren't functioning optimally and we're reaching for that coffee and that chocolate, what happens is that we also get used to that habit because suddenly we have that energy lift. Suddenly, hey, we can go again for another hour or an hour and a half, but then it dips again. So keeping blood glucose stable is one of the most important things that anybody can do for their brain under all circumstances because it keeps our mood stable. It helps our focus and concentration, which optimally, which optimizes our learning and, and our memory capacity. And then, of course, also it stops the cravings, which stops that vicious up and down. So keeping blood glucose stable is extremely important, and we can do that at every single meal if we make sure that the meals are nutrient-dense, so they've got good, clean protein, high-fiber carbohydrates, which are colorful, and also good fat. So when we make sure that our, our meals compose of that, we find that our cravings drop, and then we have much less of a chance of consuming those highly processed foods which cause that negative you know, downward spiral. So that, in essence, is, is one of the most important things to do, is to keep our blood glucose stable. Um, and then, of course, if I put my psychology hat on, then I say to people, look, as you said earlier, you know, you do the meditation, you do the exercise, you do the, what are my values? What are the things that really matter to me? What are the things I should be paying attention to? Because when you do that, you automatically take your focus away from the things that don't matter. And then you have more power and control over the things that do. So we can put together the psychology, we can put together the nutrition, and we can put together the capacity to build a new neural pathway to just manage stress more effectively. As I said earlier, you know, the thing about the brain, it really hates uncertainty, Dave. It really dislikes uncertainty. It's the worst kind of stress you can actually give the brain is a sense of uncertainty. So the prefrontal cortex is working overtime for most people now. And, you know, if you're in a management position, you may have to make serious decisions. That prefrontal cortex is exhausted. So making sure you're giving it the right nutrition and also focusing on only what you can control. Very important strategies. Mm. Okay, so you uh, you gave us a lot of information, a lot of valuable information. Let's uh, let's talk about keeping blood glucose stable for a moment. So, does that mean eating just three, you know, three healthy, balanced meals, or does that mean, you know, maybe grabbing a banana in the middle of the afternoon as a snack, or an apple in the afternoon as a snack, or half an apple instead of, you know, reaching for that coffee? What, is there something we need to be doing between meals to keep the blood glucose stable? Good question. If your digestive system and your, your physiology is pretty robust, you should be able to get by with three good meals a day and no snacking. Okay. For most people, though, their blood glucose is up and down, up and down because of stress and because of probably not eating really optimally up until this point. Then have a good snack, evenly divided between the next, the meal that you've just had and the meal that's coming up because the digestive system also needs a break. Every time you introduce a new food, the digestive system's got to start working again and that can cause a challenge. I suggest to people that they just grab an apple and dip it into some nut butter. If you're really craving chocolate, keep some chunks of frozen banana in the freezer and just melt a little bit of dark chocolate mm. and dip a frozen banana into that and enjoy that. 
just don't do that after 4 p.m. Yeah. Because chocolate contains something called theobromine, which stimulates your heart muscle. And so you'll be lying in bed exhausted, but your heart will be racing. <laughs> so 4 p.m. is kind of the cutoff for, cho- for chocolate. 4 p.m. Okay. That's a, it's, good, it's good to know. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit now about some of these. Uh, I, have, I have some friends who are into this intermittent fasting. And, you know, I've never been a big fan of things that weren't sustainable for the long term. Um, I, you know, I've ha- I've ha- I have some friends who have lost a, a significant amount of weight doing intermittent fasting. That can't really be good for your body, though, can it? Like going going 18 hours without eating and then eating, you know, 1,500 calories between, you know, 12 and 6 p.m. or something. Does that it, is that does that make sense from a from a nutritional standpoint? This is a good question, and and once again, there are a few answers. If you're very very stressed, I definitely don't suggest that you do intermittent fasting. Mm. Obviously, fasting overnight is a good idea. You can go from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m., a good 12-hour gap between your meals, mm. and that's perfectly fine and actually really healthy. But if you're experiencing a lot of stress, and I suspect a lot of people have been very stressed, mm. they've put on weight, they've heard about intermittent fasting, and now they're doing that, some people will have a good outcome. You know, there's genes involved here, there's age involved, there's gender involved. Uh, you know, a, a big discussion. But if you're really stressed, when you become hungry, the brain immediately sends adrenaline into your body to say, hey, find food. You need food. Running out of energy isn't an option for the brain. I mean, we have nowhere to store energy in the brain. Just think about it. You know, between our ears, where do we store it? Right. We know where we store it on our body, but not in our brain. So if you're really stressed, intermittent fasting during the daylight hours, not a good plan because you're simply going to be producing more and more adrenaline during the day and cortisol. If you're not really stressed, it can actually be quite a good thing to have a break. And I know that there are people out there and they advocate this and millions of people follow them and listen to them. But the truth of the matter is that we have no long-term studies to show that intermittent fasting is any better than eating a well-balanced diet, which is much more sustainable long-term. So I think the jury's still out. The people that are getting a benefit, great. You used a wonderful word, sustainable. Can you keep this up for the rest of your life? Maybe, maybe not. There is some evidence to show that a calorie-restricted diet can lengthen life, and that's fine. But this is not to, we're not talking about 18, 20, 24 hours of not eating. This is just rest, restricting calories eating normally du- sorry, during the day. Right. So that's different to what you're talking about you know, with, with these long periods of time. Stress definitely has a role to play, and I think everybody needs to think very carefully about their own situation. Um, and if you can go and have a a day with breakfast, lunch, dinner, and no snacks in between, and you cope well with that, that will lead to long-term health. Intermittent fasting, maybe, maybe not. Right. The jury's still out. So if you if, if you you went to the doctor and you got a, a you, you know the doctor says to you look you're you're overweight and you you know the pandemic has not been kind to you you need to you need to lose some weight the best thing to do for, if I'm hearing you correctly then take your calorie count you know keep your calorie count at three at three thousand and get in, increase your exercise and burn off thirty five hundred calories during the course of the day it's going to take you longer to lose the weight but that's you know from a from a safety standpoint and from a standpoint of putting extra stress on your body, not the same kind of stress we're talking about, but, you know, know, stress, stress on your body, you know, uh, shorting the calories by burning off 500 more calories than you take in 
is probably a safer way to go than than you know saying all right i'm not going to eat until noon every day and then on wednesdays i'm not going to eat at all i mean for me i only like to do things that i know i can carry through for the long term so you know if i if you tell me hey listen dave 3000 calories a day do it for six months and you'll be at your ideal weight. I mean, I can 3000 calories. I can manage that. That's not a problem. If I, you know, especially if I'm going for a four or five mile walk during the course of the day. Yeah, no, no problem. I can do that. So that's a, that's a better way to go. Right. Well, Counting calories is not my favorite because we weren't born with a scale mm. to count calories. Right. So I think we need to eat until we're satisfied, but it's easy to do that when you're eating the right kind of food. Right. And I think, you know, once you're eating the, the, the right kind of food, calories come into it, but incidentally, they come into that. And along with that comes improved gut health. Because when your gut becomes improved, this is interesting research that they've done. They now know that people can have a gut ratio for good to bad mm -hmm. that helps them skip out calories. So this means these gut, these gut bacteria, bacteria are so smart, Dave. They say, you know what? We're living in a really healthy place. So we don't have to extract every single last calorie from the food. We can let some calories go. Happy gut, happy person, stable weight. In other people, the ratio is the other way. They've got too many bacteria that are clinging on to calories. Mm. And so they extract every last calorie from the food that we eat, from the food that the person's eating, and then the person ends up putting on weight, even if they're not eating a lot. So gut health is extremely important in terms of looking after sustainable weight loss and, an, and a, a stable weight because over time that gut bacteria actually rule whether you're going to put on weight or not and of course we're back to stress again because stress impacts that ratio between the good and the bad gut bacteria the other thing with exercise which you mentioned exercise does so many wonderful things on so many different levels and one of the things which is directly related to to um, appetite is it lowers appetite just naturally our cravings disappear mm. when we move I think a lot of the people that talk about intermittent fasting and about dieting and so on say, you know, they hark back to the days when we were chasing gazelles across the, <laughs> across the savannah. I know. And they, I, say, they, hey, always, you know. they always fall back to that, right? Yeah, but I'm not a caveman. I live in a civilized society with a refrigerator five steps away from me. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and we're not chasing jolly gazelles anymore. Yeah. We're living in a real world. And also we have to make decisions and think much more critically that we had to do then. We need more nutrients now than we needed then. And we may have gone without food for longer periods of time, but we didn't have the stress that we have now. So they need to take all of those things into account. If the biggest stress was, hey, the herd of gazelles are coming across the savannah in the next half an hour, how cool was that? Yes. That's not the, the only stress we have today. So those are all things that they just, you know, they just ignore and pu push that under the carpet. So this is an important but a big discussion. We now have brains that need a vast quantity of nutrients, many more than they've ever needed before to be able to help us step up, become stress resilient and cope in a very complex world that we've all created for ourselves. But it's a different world to the Savannah world. Yeah. So your your research, a lot of your research has been done in uh, older, uh, older adults, uh, primarily, I guess, uh, from from what I read about you. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, older women, um, people who are like my age. I'm 53 years old. And as we get older, I guess our hormone production is is a little bit lower. Um, what what should people my age, both men and women? And you can talk. Please talk about men and women separately. What should we be thinking about? nutrition wise to balance out 
what, you know, just age and the way our bodies age to balance out what's missing from, uh, from our bodies as we get older? I think we go back once again just to do that blood panel to make sure what's happening and also to assess hormones in that blood panel. Mm. As far as men and women go, Dave, the thing with women's hormones, which is different to male hormones, our hormones fluctuate regularly throughout the month in our reproductive years. And those hormones, estrogen and progesterone, are linked to serotonin and GABA production in the brain. So any woman who doesn't feel a shift in her mood and her mindset during the month is really an exception to the rule, mm -hmm. simply because estrogen and serotonin are partners and progesterone and GABA are partners. So that's what happens in the female brain. In the male brain, it's different because your hormones don't fluctuate during the month. Testosterone is basically at a good level for most of your lifetime and slowly, slowly decreases as you get older. I mean, men can, can father children into their 70s and 80s. So we, we, clearly there is a difference in our hormonal production. So men aren't as susceptible to anxiety and depression, for example, because of that, whereas women are because of the, the, the progesterone, you know, the, the, the neurotransmitter connection. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Secondly, women seem to have a different response to stress. Now, this is very interesting. It seems that when women are exposed to stress, our brain doesn't shut off in the same way that the male brain shuts off. And when you speak to women about this, they will go, of course, they can see that in their interactions with men. Because women will pursue a challenge days, weeks, maybe months after it's appeared, where a man will say, you know what, we dealt with that, we put it in a box, we're not looking at it again. Mm. And you know, when this is one of the things that happens to men and women where they get a little bit kind of like irritated with each other, you know, I'll say something to my husband and he'll say, but you were going on about that three weeks ago. Isn't it over? And I'm going, no, I'm still ruminating on that. So our brains are different. You know, we, we, we look at the world in a different way. And so our response to stress is different. Um, the female brain is also a lot more active in the limbic area, the emotional area. And there are a lot of different explanations for why that could be the case. Obviously, society has partly been, had a role to play in that. But it seems that women needed to be more tightly wired in our limbic system because we had to pick up cues from children who weren't, ver weren't verbal yet. We had to pick up cues from people around us that you know, maybe endangered us. So there were a lot of different reasons for why that happened. So women are much more in attuned to emotions and to what people say and how they say it. You know, we'll see a friend and she doesn't greet us happily and we'll think, what have I done wrong? Mm. You won't see a friend or you'll see a friend and he's not very friendly and you'll go, oh, he must have something on his mind. We just perceive or the world we, differently. Or we, won't even, we won't even notice. <laughs> we'll just keep going. <laughs> Absolutely. We wouldn't so even pick it up. Very we wouldn't different. even recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> so we just seem a little bit more sensitive in that area. And that's perfectly fine. You know, when we work together and collaborate, there's not a problem with that. But that, of course, translates into how we see ourselves in the world and how effective we see ourselves. And also our neurology and our nutrition. Because there's some interesting research to show that women actually start suffering more from nutrient deficiencies earlier than men do. Mm. So that's something to keep in mind. And it's probably because we, you know, we are capable of creating the next generation. So we had to be much more um, sensitive to nutrient deficiencies. But yeah, so that's 
we kind of like got a little bit off the discussion there, but my research has shown that women are definitely more susceptible to anxiety and depression and that the nutrients that they're consuming are not necessarily helpful, that psychological strategies may be necessary as well as making sure that their diet is really optimum. Oh, okay. All right. Um, talk to me about your about your books, and I, I want to send everybody. I'm going to put it in the show notes. I'll put links uh, to the to Amazon so people can get your books on Amazon. But the website is a, you have a beautiful website. So if you go to www. It's lby right dot life. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yes. www. Lby uh, dot life. And what does the LBY stand for? So, cause when we click on it, you see the, you see the banner up there, it says lighter, brighter you and the, and your book feed, the feed your brain cookbook recipes to support a lighter, brighter you comes up right at the top. Um, talk about what, what goes into, what goes into writing a cookbook? I mean, it, it's the, the research for having, having written a couple of books myself. I mean, I sat down and I wrote the books. I mean, I, I, you know, I had some notes, I did research over the years working with clients, but you know, that was pretty much just incidental to the work that I was doing to write a cookbook and make, you got to make sure that stuff really works. So you must've done a lot of time in the kitchen to make sure that that food was really, you know, it was really, first of all, you, it can't just be good for you. It also has to taste good. Right. So that's a lot of work. <laughs> Talk, tell, tell folks what it was like to write a cookbook. Well, I first got to tell you that the book that I wrote before was all the science about the brain and how the brain needs nutrients. So I wrote that book first and then people said to me, but we, you know, I've only put 35 recipes in, in that book and they said but we want more recipes and I said okay so the publisher said twisted my arm and so I wrote a book and I just took all the principles of what the brain needs to function optimally and I put it into the recipe book and it wasn't that hard to write in all honesty Dave because I had been making this food and variations of these recipes for 20 years oh. because when I discovered all of this I didn't want my children to feel deprived so I started making that kind of food 20 years ago oh. and, you know, their friends would pop by and their friends' mothers would say, why does my child eat broccoli in your house, but they won't eat broccoli in my house? And I said, oh, I've got a secret. And so I just tweaked all of those things and put them in the recipe book and made it easy for people. Um, but as you say, the trick is not to be deprived when you're eating healthy. Mm -hmm. And that I made sure that people wouldn't feel deprived. And one of the ways to do that is to use the right kinds of fats because flavor molecules disperse in fat much more efficiently than they disperse in water, which is why the low-fat diet was a huge fail. Mm. They had to add something else beside the fat. So I make sure that all my recipes have good fat in them which supports the brain at a structural level and also facilitates the, the flavor molecules. And, of course, spices and herbs. And they're actually vegan recipes, not because I advocate being a vegan, but simply because most people need help in cooking food that doesn't have any animal products in it. Mm. And from an environmental perspective, eating more vegan food is also good for us. So... Yeah, so it wasn't that hard to write it in all honesty because I'd been at it for 20 plus years. Well, I certainly I certainly admire you doing it because I know, listen, my wife is a fantastic cook, but I know how I know how hard it is to make things that people like and to make sure that they're good for them, right? Because everything that everything that we've been conditioned to taste to believe is a favorable taste Technically, it's probably bad for you, right? So like salt and sugar, we love the taste of those things, and those things are terrible for you. All right, let's uh, really, uh, you know, we, we've, we've gone on for a long time, but really quickly, I want to ask you a few other things that come up in conversation all the time. 
Um, first and foremost, the uh, probiotic supplements. Uh, we take them. People people talk about them. I've heard mixed things, and I've read mixed research. Do probiotic supplements work, or do they not work? I mean, I, obviously, it's best to get your gut flora naturally if you can. But do the supplements that people take work, or is that just a money making scam? Once again, it's a, it's difficult to answer. You have to actually look at the quality of the product, mm -hmm. and you have to see how many viable bacteria are actually in the product. Right. So that. You know, if the marketing is really great and it's a rubbish product, more people will buy it and they won't benefit. And then, of course, you've got the placebo effect, which is something that's very hard to rule out as well. Um, probiotics work if they're the right kind while you're taking them. Right. Bottom line. Yeah. But when you stop taking them and you don't have the right bacteria, then they don't work because you're not taking them. So the aim of the exercise is to eat more prebiotic foods. These are foods that provide food for the good bacteria so that they can start proliferating. And these are really easy foods to consume. Things like onions, garlic, leeks, artichokes are one of my favorites. Mm. And they just give the right environment for the bacteria to proliferate. And when you start doing that, you don't actually need probiotics anymore. So they do work if they're the right kind while you're taking them. But prebiotics definitely wins hands down over long-term sustainable. You like that word? I like that word. Yeah, Let's you know, so the uh, and one of the things we've noticed, uh, just I'm talking about my family now. One of the things we've noticed, particularly my son is uh, my son is 12 years old. He's going to be 13. And he had a for years. He had a condition called eosinophilic esophagitis. It's a it's a it's triggered by allergies to different food products. So he was on a gluten free diet for a, for a very long time. And you know, we, we were able to, his body with hormones and going through puberty changed so he can eat everything now. And it's, you know, life is much easier uh, for him. But one of the things that had helped him maintain stability was, and we noticed it when he was taking the probiotics uh, and he went to the bathroom, we could tell based on the consistency of his elimination whether or not that was working. So when I would hear people say, oh, those don't work, I mean, you know, he could tell you, you know, I take them, it works. I take them, it doesn't, it's yeah. different. So something's going on in there, <laughs> you know. So that, you know, as far as, and it's, you know, this was a, this is a product that was recommended by his gastroenterologist. And it was, you know, it was a premium price product. But if he was going to take it, and that's the other thing we did, we decided if what he, whatever he was going to do, I was going to do. So if he was going to take it, I took it. And I noticed I felt a lot better uh, when I, when I was taking it. So, and again, I wasn't sure if it was the placebo effect because, you know, my brain, my imagination can be just as active as anybody else's, but you know, no matter what it's, it, it seemed to work fine. So it's, it's good to hear that if you take the right product, it works. Let's talk now really quickly about turmeric or curcumin. Um, again, I've seen different things. Uh, it is, you know, is it an anti-inflammatory? Can the body absorb it? Uh, t tell us about about turmeric or about curcumin. What what is what is the benefit of that, if any? Um, turmeric is a wonderful substance, and within turmeric is curcumin, and curcumin is a bright yellow powder. Um, comes from a little root, and the reason it's so effective is because it's both an antioxidant and an anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And some of the early studies on this looked at Alzheimer's or which is the most prominent form of dementia in Indian populations. And they found that Indian populations were actually lower 
had lower rates of Alzheimer's than, than other population. And they said, why was that the case? And then they said, oh, we think it's curcumin. But what they actually forgot at that point in time was that everybody was eating curcumin in a form of curry which had fat in it. Mm. So curcumin is very well absorbed when you're consuming it with fat. So I make a macadamia salad dressing with turmeric in it. And when I make a curry, I obviously make it with coconut milk because that's traditionally how they consumed it and that's where the benefit is found. There is some research that says if you heat it to a very high temperature and you dissolve it in water, blah, 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 but I just prefer to go back to basics. It's most effective and it's absorbed most efficiently with a good form of fat. Okay. And that's the story about curcumin. It is useful. It's very helpful. But have it with your food. That's a much better way to do it than putting it in a capsule. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I, that's. Uh, I. I. I figured. I figured is. You're always better off. Rather. I mean, supplements are. I guess kind of the last resort if you if you're not getting enough of these nutrients in in food. Um, quercetin. Taking quercetin and zinc at the same time. Does that help the zinc get into cells so that it's more protective? Um, you know, I've read that in, in certain places. I mean, you know, all these things are coming to the fore now during the pandemic because everybody wants to make sure they're, like you said, you know, your immune system takes time. You can't get a crappy immune system up to speed in two or three months. But taking quercetin with zinc because it's an, I think it's pronounced ionophore or something. So it, so it gets, it, it gets the zinc into the cells. Is that, do I have that right? Does that work that way? I don't know anything about that, okay. and right. as far as long-term studies go, I can't answer that question. Okay. I think when, when people read studies, I always say follow the money. Right. You know, whoever's telling you that works, if they're trying to sell you something, just go back to the research. And if anybody wants to ask me a question, they can happily send me an email because I can dive into the research and I can tell them if it's robust or not. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. That's great. So I want everybody to go to uh, ily.life and it's lighterbrighteru.life, I guess. So if you put in lighterbrighteru.life and you enter it too, it'll, it'll come up and you can read all about uh, Dr. Delia McCabe and the, the cookbook she has and the research book she's written before that. Her, her blog articles are fantastic. I, uh, I read several of them uh, earlier today and I'm going to read the rest of them because she knows really it's like you wrote these exactly for me like top three ways to maximize gut and brain health who doesn't want to read that everybody wants good gut and brain health right do women experience stress differently from men oh my goodness i bet they do um so uh go to uh lighter brighter you.life or lby.life i'm also going to put a link to the amazon um the books on amazon so you can buy the books on amazon Dr. Delia McCabe, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And thank you for answering all of my sometimes ridiculous questions about my freaky nutritional, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know why I have all these questions, but you were the perfect person to have on to answer them. So thank you so much for being here. I, I loved your questions, Dave. Thank you very much. It was a delight for me. Oh, uh, it was, uh, it was an absolute pleasure. All right, folks. So we're going to put all those links in uh, in the show notes. I want you to go to Amazon and pick up a copy of the cookbook. Uh, it is uh, tested by a mom who fed the food to her kids and to the neighbor's kids. And not only are they all still there, but they actually liked it and they ate broccoli at her house. So if you want to get your kids to eat broccoli, this is the book for you to check out. Besides that, it's good for you and it will help you with the management of your stress. This is the Inside BS Show, and today we gave you the Inside BS on managing stress in your life through nutrition. 
Come back here again tomorrow where we'll take on another topic just like this. Each day we share the insider business secrets with you, share the inside business strategy, and help you cut through all the inside BS that's holding you back. Until tomorrow, please go out there and make a great living and live a great life.